If you are chronically getting bad sleep, your insulin resistance, your insulin sensitivity is going to be suboptimal. You're going to be at higher risk for metabolic disease. I very much am a, am a believer in reducing um, added sugars and simple sugars. This is really, in my view, fundamentally the most important problem when it comes to human health and biology. My name is Matt Caberman, and welcome to the OptiSpan YouTube channel. The information provided on the OptiSpan YouTube channel is intended solely for general educational purposes and is not meant to be, nor should it be construed as, personalized medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is established by your use of this channel. The information and materials presented are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We strongly advise that you consult with a licensed healthcare professional for all matters concerning your health, especially before undertaking any changes based on content provided by this channel. The hosts and guests on this channel are not liable for any direct, indirect, or other damages or adverse effects that may arise from the application of the information discussed. Medical knowledge is constantly evolving. Therefore, the information provided should be verified against current medical standards and practices. Hey everyone, welcome to the OptiSpan YouTube channel. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm joined by Tara, our head of strategy at OptiSpan. And Tara has a few questions for me, so let the inquisition begin. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. So, yeah, I, ha I have a few questions that come up a lot when I talk to people about geroscience, about healthy aging, and, and I'd love to hear your take on them. So, so let's just jump right in. Great. My first question is, we all know that uh, of the people who are lucky enough to reach old age, Many of them will spend the last decade or so of their lives in, in some kind of suffering from some kind of disease or disability, right? So they might have Alzheimer's disease or cancer or, or both, or they might be very frail, um, have a fall, break, break their hip, something like that, and, and are generally just not in a good condition. I'm, I'm curious, what is it that makes us become sicker and more frail as we get older? What's actually happening inside our bodies? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, uh, from a biological perspective, we've learned a lot about the mechanisms of biological aging, the types of damage that accumulate. There's not, there's a lot that we still don't know, but I think the best, the best sort of framework that has come along so far for thinking about this are what people call the hallmarks of aging, and right. we touch on this in some of the episodes on the on the YouTube channel. But the hallmarks are really twelve different types of damage that accumulate with age seem to happen in all animals and are really the, it, I would argue, the causal drivers of the functional declines and disease risk that goes up as we get older. And so it's really that at a molecular level, biochemical level, it's those types of damage that are accumulating that lead to all of the problems that, that happen physiologically in our bodies as, as we get older. I think there's lots of interesting ways that, that um, the hallmarks of aging can be affected. They're impacted by a bunch of different environmental factors, um, and they're impacted differently in different people. So our genetics plays a role in, in why some people say are more susceptible to cancer and other people maybe are more susceptible to, to diabetes. But it's really, I think it boils down to that biology of aging 
that is driving the changes that are at least permissive, if not causal, for the, the functional declines and diseases of, of old age. I also think it's just worth saying that, um, you know, I think those of us who are biologists, we tend to focus a lot on the negative aspects of aging. Right. Not everything about aging is bad, right? And so I think, you know, we should also recognize there's a lot of good things that go along with getting older, uh, accumulated experience, wisdom, um, and so one of the real, I think, reasons for optimism is if we can understand the biology of aging, actually do something about those hallmarks, we can actually then allow people to maintain function and health much longer yeah. in life so that we can then reap the benefits of the, the good aspects that go along with aging. Right, right. So, so you said um, do something about those hallmarks. Can we do anything about those hallmarks right now in humans? Yeah, no question. I, I mean, I think, again, we, have to, we should be realistic. Uh, yeah. But if you just look at the lifestyle factors that I think everybody would agree uh, impact health as we get older, the reason why those lifestyle factors impact health as we get older is because they're impacting the hallmarks of aging. They're impacting the biology right. of aging. So what I mean by that is a healthy diet, right? or regular exercise, or getting good quality sleep, right? Those things impinge directly on the biological mechanisms of aging. And the reason why regular exercise reduces your risk of dementia and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and a bunch of other stuff is because you're positively impacting the biology right, of aging. Right. The flip side of that is that unhealthy lifestyle factors seem to accelerate biological aging. So I think the best example of this is probably metabolic disease and obesity. Mm -hmm. I think it's very clear that metabolic disease, and by that I mean diabetes and related disorders, metabolic disease and obesity increase your risk of a whole bunch of different age-related diseases. And the reason why it's not only cancer or only heart disease that's being impacted is because those lifestyle factors are directly modulating the biology of aging. So at that level, yeah, there's no question we can modulate the biology of aging. I think maybe what you were uh, indirectly asking is, can we can we modulate the biology of aging other ways with yeah. supplements or drugs or potentially someday gene therapy? I, I think that's a little bit more of a gray area. Um, there's reason to believe, certainly, that it's possible. Like, I personally have no doubt that there are some supplements and some pharmaceutical medications that modulate the biology of aging. Um, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging to say with confidence that for an individual person, a particular supplement or a particular medication will significantly increase lifespan and health span. And, and the reasons for that you know, are sort of obvious, but again, maybe worth stating. Um, number one, to really definitively prove that you have slowed the aging process in people, that's a multiple decade experiment, yeah. right? And you need thousands of people, and we just don't have that data right yeah. now. So, so I don't personally feel confident saying that rapamycin or you know, a particular uh, supplement is going to slow the aging process yeah. in myself or in you or in other people. But I can sort of in my own sort of sort of mind have a probabilistic determination of what I think the odds are that that's the case. Right. But but I think from a more conceptual perspective, yes, there's absolutely no question that it is possible to modulate the biology of aging using things like small molecules, potentially someday gene therapy. I don't think we're there yet. But yeah, but yeah I think that is that is on the horizon and, and certainly doable. Okay. So you've mentioned small molecules, gene therapy, and, and that makes me think, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, well, this, this field has kind of become a lot more mainstream in recent, in recent years, right? And, and, and there are a lot of people doing 
in, in from industry, from academia, um, trying to figure out how we can mod modulate the biology of aging through small molecules and, and gene therapy and, and such. Um, which which area of R and D are you most excited about? What do you think is most promising? I mean, it sounds like it sounds. I'm hearing that you're saying it's going to be a long time before we see anything. But is there something that you're thinking like, hey, there's maybe there is something there, even if it takes a long time? Yeah. So let me let me frame it in a couple of ways. I think it's going to be a long time before we have proof in humans that a particular intervention, I'm just going to bucket all of these as interventions, that a particular intervention definitively increases lifespan or health span, right? Um, simply, again, because of the timescales involved. So I think in people, we're going to be reliant upon either um, biomarkers, and we can talk more about that, but those would be sort of short-term measures that you could use that we think are predictive of long-term health outcomes, yeah. mortality or disease risk. So I think we're gonna be reliant on biomarkers, or we're gonna be reliant on individual age-related disease risk. So for example, you could take a population of people who are at high risk of dementia, don't yet have dementia, and show in a shorter time frame that 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 fewer of them go on to develop dementia because you've positively targeted the biology of aging. So I think those are that's kind of what we're going to be restricted to in the order of 10 to 15 years. I do think there are opportunities in companion animals, so pet dogs, for example, that age seven to ten times faster than people, where you can actually show definitively, quantitatively, that you have impacted lifespan and multiple health span metrics in a shorter time frame. So as an example, um, in the Dog Aging Project, we've designed a clinical trial of rapamycin where we are statistically powered to detect a lifespan benefit of 9% or more in three years. That's just something you couldn't do in people without it being a multi-billion dollar yeah. trial because of the length of of time people live and and the number of people that would be needed. So I think there are opportunities there to get towards, you know, real definitive proof right. that you have modulated the biology of aging. Um, so it's gonna, it's, you know, but I, this gets back to what I was alluding to before, which is that I think um, we may not need proof, right? So the question is like, when does the burden of evidence shift far enough that reasonable people doing a reasonable risk reward analysis would say, okay, the risk is low enough, the potential benefit is high enough that it's worth starting to deploy some of these interventions at a, at a larger scale than what is currently happening now. I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think these are the kinds of questions that will come up. And, and I think one of the reasons why they'll come up is because we will start to see, we're already seeing biotechnology companies, eventually big pharma, wade into this area, develop drugs that they think are targeting the biology of aging, yeah. they probably won't get FDA approval for aging. They'll get FDA approval for a particular age-related disease or particular functional endpoint. But once that happens, then when does the medical community agree that the risk-reward favors making this available to people on a, on a broader scale. And, and I know I'm going on for a while, but just to give a specific example, I tend to do that. <laughs> um, just to give a specific example, you know, there was a company called Restore Bio a few years ago now that was working on a, a drug uh, that was a, an inhibitor of mTOR, which is the same protein that rapamycin inhibits. And their endpoint was initially vaccine response in the elderly. And I'm using this as an example. I don't really want to talk about Restore Bio. We'll save that for another 
episode. But, um, but if you think about vaccine response in the elderly as your clinical trial endpoint, we know that vaccine response goes down with age. Yeah. In other words, older people, if you give them a flu vaccine or a COVID-19 vaccine or any other vaccine, if you then look at their antibody response, it's lower than a young person on average. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine if you had a drug that could rejuvenate the function of the immune system like rapamycin appears to in mice and probably does in people, you could do a clinical trial where you treat with the drug for six weeks, then you give the vaccine, and then you just measure the response. And that's a perfectly valid endpoint for FDA approval. So let's say a company does that and they get FDA approval for their drug X that they, they believe targets the biology of aging, but it's approved to boost vaccine response in the elderly. Mm -hmm. You could see that deployed to hundreds of millions of people very quickly, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's an example of how this might evolve where we don't actually know that drug will increase lifespan and health span, but we're pretty confident it will boost vaccine response in the elderly. And so it gets deployed to lots and lots of people prior to actual statistical evidence that it's, that it's increasing lifespan or health span. Right, right. So going back to what you're saying earlier, though, uh, you talked about the dog aging project and, and how um, it's sort of more uh, feasible to do this, this, these, these trials in dogs because the, the, their lifespans are a lot shorter, whereas with humans, you'd have to wait for a lifetime to figure right. out if, if your intervention worked. Do you think there's any way we can, um, we can shorten that time or, or make, make human clinical trials less costly? Well, there are lots of ways to make human clinical trials less costly, but that, again, is probably a whole episode in and of itself that would get into sort of the way that the structure of FDA regulation operates. It's like there's a lot of inefficiencies in that process. Yeah. But I think what you're really asking is in the context of biological aging, is there a way to really shorten the length of time that it would take to prove that an intervention is affecting right. aging? Prove that so, it worked, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think there are, there are some potential workarounds that people have thought about. I think the one that, that, one that I just alluded to, I think makes the most sense. So pick a functional endpoint that is not specific to a particular age-related disease, but that we know goes declines with age and show that you can either maintain or improve function. Personally, I like that model the best, and that was the immune uh, vaccine response uh, example I gave. Another model that people have um, started to try to develop is, is the model that Nir Barzilai and the folks who are working on the TAME trial are using. So TAME, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with TAME, is targeting aging with metformin. It's specifically looking at whether metformin can have an impact on age-related diseases in people. But, but it's a geroscience trial in that the rationale for that is that people believe that metformin targets the biology of aging. And the, the design there is instead of using a single age-related disease as the endpoint, they are using what's called a composite endpoint made up of multiple age-related diseases. Right. And this is something that, is, that, that FDA has done in the past, mm -hmm. that they will accept multiple diseases as a single endpoint or multiple functional endpoints as a single endpoint. And in TAME in particular, what they're doing is asking, it's really a comorbidity trial where you take a population of people who have one age-related disease, so they've been diagnosed with either cancer or heart disease or mild cognitive impairment, they're, that's the entrance criteria. And then you treat them, in this case with metformin, but in principle it could be any intervention, and you ask whether the length of time before they develop the second age-related disease is changed. Right. Obviously, right. optimally, you would predict it would be extended if the intervention is working. Again, the rationale there is that a geroscience intervention, an intervention that targets the biology of aging, should affect 
multiple, maybe all age-related diseases as opposed to just one. Yeah. So that's the other model that I think um, has been popularized. It's unproven, so that the TAME trial hasn't been completed, so we don't know whether it's going to work or not. But it makes sense yeah. that you would expect to see multiple age-related diseases. I think the TAME trial, sorry, Nair, if I get this wrong, I think the TAME trial is designed to be either a five- or seven-year trial. Mm -hmm. It's still, you know, tens of millions, maybe more than $100 million to do even that trial. So I think wow. the question yeah. is, is that scalable? Can you do it for 10 interventions yeah. or 50 interventions? I don't know. I mean, yes, the resources are there, but... I think uh, the the pharmaceutical companies have to believe that there's a path to approval that's likely to work before they're going to invest those kinds of resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And then, bio, sorry, biomarkers is the other place where we just have to kind of wait and see how it evolves. You know, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm uh, around aging clocks, which, again, we'll have an episode on aging clocks, so check that out if you want to do a deeper dive. Um, the, the question is whether or not these biomarkers of aging or aging clocks, how long it will take before the regulatory bodies accept those as what are called surrogate endpoints. And what that means is that for a clinical trial, you don't necessarily have to show that you have increased lifespan or health span right. in theory. They would accept an aging clock as a surrogate endpoint that would at least get you partway to approval. Whether it would get you all the way to approval or not, un unclear, but maybe it would help as part of the overall package. Certainly, if those biomarkers became accepted, then yeah, you could see a dramatic acceleration of development because instead of having to show that you can increase lifespan across you know, lots and lots of people, you just show that you can move the blood-based biomarker in the right direction. Maybe that goes from being a 20-year experiment to a one-year clinical trial. Right, right. Cool. So, so... Moving away from therapeutics, we, we talked a little bit about the lifestyle stuff as well. So like sleeping, eating, uh, exercising, and so on. Uh, if you could pick one thing that you think is most important for a healthy later life, what would it be? I'm going to dodge that question because I don't think, I don't think, first of all, the, what, what, what I'm going to call the pillars, everybody's got their pillars, right? Maybe a four, maybe a 10. I don't know. We've got four at OptiSpan. And the pillars that we think are critically important when it comes to lifestyle, we like active words. So they're eat move, sleep, and connect. And I'm not convinced, first of all, that one is more important than the other. Yeah. And they're interconnected, right? Uh, so I don't know that you can say that, that if you improve your sleep, but you don't improve your diet, that you're yeah. going to move the needle. I think, I think they all have to kind of go together, and they do go together often. So what I would say is I think all of them are important. Which are um, most important and or the easiest levers to pull are going to be very individual. And so, again, what I mean by that is that some people are going to need more work in one of the pillars than in the other pillars. So I think they're all important. And um, I'd be hesitant to say that that one is more important than the others. And, and this is, you know, my thinking on this is evolving and changing. I think I probably in the past, you know, have said, along the lines of that I think exercise is, is particularly important, if not the most important. But I, I've, I've kind of changed my attitude on that. I think, right. I think they really all are um, critical to sort of optimizing your health as much as possible. Right. What made you change your mind? Education. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, I think just, just so, so I, I think previously, you know, I've gone through my own health uh, journey, and I've learned a lot about my own health. And, you know, since 
starting Optispan and getting to know a lot of the participants in our programs, I've also gotten to know a lot of other people's health journeys. Okay. And I think that's helped me recognize that, that you know, even though I knew it wasn't one size fits all, it's even less one size fits all than I, than yeah, I thought I totally it was. I agree, yeah. And on that, so, so zooming in on the EAT pillar, uh, something I find about nutrition is, is it's, it's like on the one hand, there are, there are lots of people who are interested in, in modifying how they eat and, and optimizing it, which makes sense because it's a relatively accessible pillar to change. But at the same time, it seems to me like we, we know really little about nutrition, especially when you start zooming in on specific people, right? There are so many factors at play. There's, there's environment, there's genes, there's age, yeah. activity level. And I, I'm wondering if you have any strong convictions about, about nutrition and health span, given that it, it, it seems so individually specific and kind of, in my opinion, a rather nebulous Field. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, um, I mean, I've been critical of particularly the intersection of nutrition and longevity research. I think it, that not, not because I think that the research as a whole is, you know, bad research, but I think the interpretation is often uh, uh, very, very poorly thought out and a lot of over-interpretation. So I think there's a few things I would say. One is, again, you alluded to it, uh, nutrition is very personal, right? So it's going to be different for different people. I do think there are some general themes that are going to apply for most people. And so this is sort of way, the way I think about it. And I try very hard not to get too far into the weeds because I think that's where once, once you start to get at the very detailed level, that's where it becomes very individual. I think in a general sense, if you look at just across the average American's diet, right, there are some, there's some very low-hanging fruit that, that most people can yeah. fix, right? Yeah. So my sort of view is cut out as much ultra-processed foods as you can. Mm -hmm. um, I, know I'm, I know you don't like that, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the truth. <laughs> uh, cut out as much ultra-processed foods as you can. And, and processed, I think ultra-processed, the definition there is pretty clear, and maybe we should do a specific episode on that because I know a lot of people are confused, confused about that term, processed yeah, foods. Sure. But um, processed foods, that's sort of a catch-all for a lot of stuff. But I, I, I think the idea of generally, when you go in the grocery store, focusing on the outside of the store and not the aisles in the middle, at least in the United right, States, right. works pretty well. Um, so cut as down as much ultra-processed foods as, as you can. Yeah. I very much am a, am a believer in reducing um, added sugars and simple sugars as much as possible. Okay. Um, and then I think paying attention to, to total calories. Like, I think that bucket, if you just if you just do those things, that's going to be true for pretty much everybody. Yeah. When you start getting into, you know, ketogenic diet or high-protein diet or vegan, there I think it's very individual. And I think oftentimes the answers are a little bit less clear. Yeah. My personal journey, what I found for myself is that I do very well on a pretty high protein diet. Um, personally, I mean, I'm not hungry all the time and I ha it's easy for me to maintain my body weight and body composition okay. pretty close to where I want it to be. Is that going to be true for everybody? No. Um, but it works pretty well for me. And so I think you have to do this sort of individual uh, exploration to kind of figure out what works for you as an individual. I will say, and and I think my views here align pretty well with with Peter Atia. Peter's a friend of mine, obviously. Um, where I tend to prioritize function later in life, okay. and function later in life is going to be dependent a lot, not completely, but a lot on lean mass and bone density. 
And I think we know that a low protein diet is less favorable for achieving what I would consider something close to optimal lean mass and bone density okay. in your 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. So that's also part of the reason why I think for many people, uh, a, a, a high quality diet that's fairly high in protein combined with resistance training. So now we're starting to make these pillars connect, yeah. right? Yeah. Combined with resistance training, um, is probably the best strategy. If you had to pick one and say, we're going to do this for everybody in the population, yeah. I think that's the one that would probably be best for the most people, but it's not going to be best for, for everyone. Um, and then, I, I, again, I think it's just important for people to recognize sleep plays a huge role. So, for example, yeah. if you are chronically getting bad sleep, your insulin resistance, your insulin sensitivity is going to be suboptimal. You're going to be at higher risk for metabolic disease. A particular diet may affect you metabolically very, very differently if you're getting good quality sleep versus poor quality sleep. Yeah. So again, all of these things kind of come together to impact your overall health status. And that's why I don't know that you can really separate separate the pillars completely. Right, right, right. So you, 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 you mentioned earlier, uh, you, you talked about how you think some of these studies are quite poorly thought out. Um, that makes me think of how, in general, in, in the health, wellness anti-aging, reverse aging industry, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's just a lot of stuff out there, right? Yeah. There, are, there, are, there are pills. There are diets um, that, that tell you that they're going to extend your lifespan. There are anti-aging creams in the beauty industry. And, and even in academia, there are, there are some scientists who are making pretty bold claims about what they've been able to do with, with regard to reversing aging. So what do you think is the best strategy for a non-expert to, to figure out what's actually promising and, and what's just kind of snake oil? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a, that's a really hard question. Um, so you're right. I think the challenge is there's a, there's a lot of noise. Yeah. And how do you cut through the noise and figure out what, what's real? And I, I don't have a great example or a great answer for that. I think, you know, identifying credible voices is the answer, but how you go about doing that is non-obvious, right? And unfortunately, in my personal opinion, there are not very many credible voices out there. <laughs> um, there are people who try, uh, but, but there really aren't that many people in my view again, cause I, I sort of know the science yeah. and, and, and when I see somebody say something that is inaccurate, I start to wonder whether, you know, a lot of what they say is inaccurate. And, and, and so there just aren't that many credible voices out there. Again, I mentioned Peter Atia. like for me personally, the one person that I listen to regularly in this space is Peter. I listen to his podcast and I learn a lot and I already obviously know a lot in this space. There isn't anybody else that I personally strongly would point to okay. other than myself. <laughs> I think hopefully, I mean, one of the things we're trying to build at the OptiSpan YouTube channel is a credible voice for yeah. this kind of data, right? So do I get it right all the time? No, but I, I do try very hard to, um, to not get out of my lane. And when I don't know the answer to make it clear that I'm speculating. And that's yeah. one thing I would say people should look for. I think people who speak with certainty on complex topics, yeah. uh, often don't really know the subtleties, right? Anybody who is 100% confident that whatever they're talking about slows the biological aging process, if it's not exercise or a quality diet, probably doesn't actually know what they're talking about. So, so that's, one, that's one thing I would say. Is if you see people who are talking with a high level of certainty about complex topics, mm -hmm. even if they have credentials, you should be skeptical. Um, so the other thing I would say is if they're trying to sell you something, you, I mean, I, that's kind of obvious, but if somebody's trying to sell you something, 
you, sh you might want to be a little bit more skeptical than you would be if they're just trying to give information, right? So I think that's another, another thing that I would say. Um, and then I think ask, just ask yourself, like, and maybe this, maybe this is something where, because again, I am a trained scientist and I'm trained to be skeptical. Maybe the average person isn't wired to really always think this way. But even in when I'm looking at people outside my field, um, I always ask myself, like, you know, what is this person's, if it's a, say an influencer, right? What is this person's um, training that gives them the credibility to be actually an expert in this field? There are a lot of people in the wellness space that have absolutely no training. And I'm not going to name names, but if you look at the most popular podcasts in this space and the, the, the individuals who, you know, are on those podcasts and they're, they're experts in longevity, I always look at that and I'm like, what makes that person an expert? Yeah. And then when they say things that aren't true about the field that I work in, I'm like, okay, they're not an expert. Yeah. So that's sort of the way I, I approach it. So it's, it's a hard... Um, no, I think, I think there's a couple of things that we can say with 100% certainty, right? Which is that um, if you hear somebody say that a particular supplement or drug or other type of therapy is an anti-aging therapy, right? Yeah. If you, if you look at that statement on the surface, it's not true. There is nothing that has been definitively proven to modulate the biological aging process in people in a way that we're confident will improve health span or lifespan. There are lots of things where there's some evidence to support that one way or the other, but there's nothing that we know with 100% certainty. I would argue other than regular exercise, the pillars, right? Regular exercise, high quality diet, good quality sleep. There's really nothing where we have that, that data. And so when you hear people say that, you should ask yourself, you know, if they are speaking with that level of certainty about something that is definitively not true, what else are they at least implying is true that isn't true? And again, my view is when somebody lies to you once, they're probably going to lie to you again, whether it's intentional or not. And I don't know. I don't. I don't want to imply that these people are um, ill-intentioned. I think sometimes they just don't know, um, or sometimes they think that the hyperbole is okay. Like they're maybe they think they're not doing any harm by misleading people. I tend to fall, I, maybe I'm too cautious, but I tend to try to be cautious that I don't mislead people. And, and so those are the kinds of people that I respect. And again, unfortunately, in my view, there just aren't enough of them in this space right now, yeah, which is why it feels like you're constantly being bombarded with noise and nonsense. Yeah. At least that's how it feels to me. Yeah, no, me too. You've been in this field for what, 20 years? I started my graduate work with Lenny Garenti in 1998. Okay. So almost 25 years. Okay, cool. So, so what's been the most surprising thing that you've encountered in this field? That's a good question. So I think, I mean, there've been lots of things that I've been surprised by, right? I think one of the things that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you some positives and negatives. One of the negatives in a sense that I've been surprised by is how hard it's been and how long it's taken to really convince a large fraction of people how important the biology of aging is for health. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, many of us in the field for many, many years have been advocating for something that to me is obvious, right? Biological aging is the greatest risk factor for nearly every major functional decline in disease that people in developed countries experience. Yeah. That's just a fact. And yet convincing people that we should put more resources towards doing something about biological aging as opposed to waiting until people are sick and trying to treat their individual diseases has been extremely challenging. I think we're just 
finally, after 25 years, we're finally starting to see that paradigm shift. Yep. This, is the, this is what Peter Atiyah talks about in the medical community, the shift from medicine 2.0 to medicine 3.0. In my world, it's been more about trying to, do, to, to accomplish that same shift in the biomedical research community. Um, we're finally starting to see that. And so to me, that's been, it's, it's been surprising to me how difficult it is to actually convey that message in a way that, ha that has traction. And I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody. In, in fact, I think partly we, sh we in the field need to, to look at ourselves and ask, why has it been so difficult to convey that message? Yeah. But that surprised me. I, again, when I, that's one of the reasons why I started working on this, this, this area of research was the biological complexity was super interesting, but it was also immediately apparent to me, this is really, in my view, fundamentally the most important problem when it comes to human health in biology. And it's just been surprising that, it, that, it, that it's um, been as slow as it has been to actually get traction with that. It's great to see that we are starting to get that traction. And, and so that, that's, that's, that's the positive side of it. Um, I think the other thing that, that I'm constantly surprised by these days uh, is when I go to meetings, how many just amazingly smart young people there are in the field now. Like, and <laughs> these kids, and to me, they're kids, even though they're, you know, in their 20s probably, are so far ahead of where I was at that age. That's really inspiring. And so I think, again, this is part of that you know, the field's getting traction. There's more enthusiasm and excitement about the field. But that gives me a lot of hope for the future, the fact that um, we have so many really talented young people coming into the field, not just in academia, but also in biotech industry and in computational intersection with, with longevity. Um, so that, that's been a, a pleasant surprise, and it really feels relatively recent, certainly within the last, you know, Certainly within the last five years, it yeah. feels like there's been a, that's just been increasing and increasing. So, um, so that's been fantastic. And I really look forward to see, seeing where we go in the future as a field. Yeah, that's great. I think that's all we have for today. So thanks so much, Matt, for, for answering all. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for, for being here and, uh, asking me the questions and, um, it's great to have Tara in office. She's usually a few thousand miles away on the other side of the Atlantic. So, uh, so this is, yeah. this has been fun. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Matt. So thanks for watching, everybody. If you have any questions about what we talked about today, feel free to leave a comment in the comment section. Like and subscribe if you, if you, want, if you want to see more. And we'll see you next time.